The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. An A for Alphabet, the search giant soars past earnings expectations, sending the stock sharply higher in extended trade as ad revenues rebound from their first ever decline last quarter. Apple beats, but investors are disappointed by a lack of guidance and weaker iPhone sales as consumers hold out for the latest device to be released. Amazon shares go from A to Z, bouncing in extended trade due to a near 40% jump in third quarter sales, but giving up gains over the cautious outlook from productivity headwinds. And ad revenues keep climbing for Facebook, but the social media group reports a drop in users in the U.S. and Canada, while Twitter also tops forecasts but falls short on user growth, sending shares lower. Well, U.S. stocks close higher, but Asia sees red, while European futures indicate a lower open as global virus cases rise by more than half a million in one day. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. It's been a packed week on the earnings front today, and it continues as we rake through these earnings stateside. Technology, a huge day on that front as Alphabet came out on top. The Google parent easily beat expectations with a 14% increase in third quarter revenue. It was thanks to a sharp uptick in advertising sales. Alphabet's key search business also grew 6%, rebounding from a first decline ever last quarter. A quick look at uh, the after-hours trade, as you can see, uh, a bounce in the stock, 6.5% pop. Well, let's move on to Apple. And this was the big moving stock in session yesterday. Apple top forecast with a record $64.7 billion in revenue in the fourth quarter, as increased demand for Macs and iPads partially offset a sharp decline in iPhone sales. But the company did not provide first quarter guidance, leading shares to fall in after-hours trade, currently off 4.2%. There was a volatile extended trading session for Amazon. Shares initially rose on the e-commerce giant's near 40% jump in revenues, but the stock then turned negative as investors digested news of $4 billion in costs, all tied to COVID-19, that could lead to an operating profit decline, and the share price currently drifting off 1.9%. So a bit of a mixed bag in reaction. And the earnings did not stop there on the tech front. Facebook beat third quarter earnings and revenue estimates off the back of a 22% year-on-year jump in advertising revenue. However, the results were dampened by a dip in user numbers in the U.S. and Canada, while its European user base remained flat. And here you can see Facebook shares trading down about 2.6%. Twitter shares plunged in extended trading after the company failed to meet user growth targets. Twitter also said increased scrutiny ahead of the U.S. election has made it hard to predict future advertiser behavior. However, it did easily beat analyst estimates with earnings coming in at 19 cents per share. But as you can see, that wasn't enough. Twitter shares plunging 17.5 percent.
Our colleague stateside will be discussing the challenges facing Twitter with CFO Ned Siegel later today. Don't miss that first on CNBC interview at 1350 CET. Well, given all those tech earnings and the reactions you're seeing in the after hours, uh, the U.S. futures, let's see what we're getting in terms of signals uh, for the Nasdaq. I'll start there because I think that's possibly going to be one of the big relevant ones in session. 276 odd points to the downside, 490 odd on Dow Jones futures and 66 peeling off the S&P 500. So suggesting it is not exactly going to be an upbeat session on Wall Street. But that said, you know, I think many of us are expecting in a week leading up to the election, it was going to be volatile. On top of that, it's been an incredible week as we've seen the caseload increase in uh, European markets and lockdowns being required. Now, on top of that, one area of the market where there's been so much heat, so much appetite to pile into, we've had a look at some of those numbers. And for me, when it comes to what we saw from your side of the board uh, on the subscriber levels, it had been one of the bright spots. People had thought Facebook numbers would start to to drop the amount of eyeballs they could attract would, would continue to decline this year. They didn't because people had nothing else to do except sit at home and, and take a look at some of these social media platforms. But some of that pop has now started to wane and you do have a problem when it comes to subscriber levels on some of these big platforms. And of course, one of the reasons that subscriber growth has been so impressive is because people have been home, working from home, spending more time at home. And the question, once we are on the other side of this pandemic, what happens to that new user activity is it sustainable or do we see it, it come back off? So one of the longer term questions around these tech stocks. Yeah, I want to get to Apple because I think that's a big one for the markets as well. I thought it was fascinating if you look at um, what took place on the numbers. I mean, clearly the effect of waiting out for the iPhone 12. And this wasn't just any device. It was slightly different to what they've produced in previous cycles. It's a 5G connected phone as well. So waiting it out, it didn't get released in September as per usual. It's October and, you know, obviously falls into the Christmas period, the holiday season stateside. But that said, the projections have not been there. And Tim Cook gave a, a perfectly good reason as to why, saying effectively, uh, you know, that they're they're closely watching what takes place with this uh, caseload in Europe. So I think that's quite key. The, the signaling function has been damaged by a lot of companies this week because of what we've seen in some of these European markets. Well, let's get to our, our guest who's going to talk to us a little bit more about tech. And uh, Mark Horton joins us, Investment Director at GAM. Mark, uh, you've heard the conversations. We're talking about some of the subscriber numbers at the social media platforms, but also the lack of guidance from Apple. What did you make of the big tech earnings and what jumped out to you? Um, good morning. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I think, uh, as you've already alluded to, um, we've, it, it's a little bit of travel and arrive here with the earnings generally. Uh, for me, none of the four big names reported particularly wildly out of line with what the market was expecting. I think from a key highlight point of view, uh, Facebook and Google both reported about uh, twice the growth rate the market had expected. So that was uh, clearly a positive, suggesting a faster bounce back in digital advertising than had been anticipated by the market, and very much in line with what we've already seen from uh, Pinterest and Snap. Um, Apple clearly was lackluster. Um, some uncertainty, I think, about uh, exact timing of the um, of the uh, iPhone 12 uh, launch and the 5G opportunity, uh, and the fact that they didn't give guidance, I think, uh, reflects that more than anything else. You know, will this be a super cycle or not? It's very hard to tell uh, at the moment, but we will see pretty clearly either in the next quarter or, or, or the quarter after. But it's very hard for them to know where the sales will sit in those two quarters, which is why I think they they pulled their guidance, uh, and then of course. Amazon, which um, uh, blew away the numbers uh, extremely strong. Um, 
Um, but again, you know, to what extent are, are, are we down the path of this? There was actually a really interesting quote from Sheryl Sandberg on the Facebook conference call. She said that they'd seen the equivalent of four percentage points worth of switch from offline to online in terms of uh, uh, retail penetration in just 100 days. So we've clearly seen an acceleration of ongoing trends. Uh, and so the big question, I think, for the market and the reason that shares generally traded lower afterwards is to what extent is, is this now already priced in? Mark, there are a couple of features in what you mentioned. Advertising had jumped back, and that was important for some of these platforms. But the other point you make about Amazon, as we take a look at uh, very decent numbers, was the ramp up in costs. And the market was a little bit shocked by the level, so at $4 billion in costs. And effectively, that they pointed to some of the productivity headwinds. You've got social distancing in some of these warehouses, which really impacts their productivity. What did you make of the, uh, some of those features? I mean, we've seen it with some of the other retail companies right here in the UK with you know, the likes of Tesco and Sainsbury's as well. So what did you make of that feature in the Amazon numbers? Um, yes, as you point out, that was the blemish within Amazon in sense uh, compared to what the market was expecting. So they guided uh, down on profitability for the next quarter due to the $4 billion of what they've termed as COVID costs. Uh, so I think you're right. And the question is, will that go on longer uh, than one quarter. There's another issue which is quite interesting, and, and there's there's a dearth of potential um, fulfilment. So uh, there's uh, there was a number out in the market uh, last week, I think it was, suggesting that up to seven million parcels per day uh, in the US um, are, are short of what is available in terms of capacity for shipping. So I think there's actually going to be a fulfilment issue in general, not just the social distancing measures, and that's causing a real headache for for many of these uh, e-commerce companies. Mark, I want to ask you about Facebook to help us understand the earnings potential here. Mark Zuckerberg noted that 200 million businesses use its free tool and they've got 10 million active advertisers. How should we think about that 200 million number in terms of potential conversion to paying for their services? Um, well, I mean, that does represent uh, the opportunity, I think, doesn't it? Um, so, you know, 10 million up to 200 million, even if they were only to get a quarter of that, uh, would be uh, very substantial. Again, on the conference call, um, Sheryl Sandberg pointed out that if Facebook, as she termed it, was the, uh, was the digital lifeline for retail businesses. And I think this is very much, uh, very much the case. And again, there will be some permanent transition. Uh, customers will have learned to use Facebook who might not have learned to do it otherwise. She gave a number of examples on the call of small companies whose very survival essentially had been insured by the use of the Facebook network. What about uh, the private messaging opportunity at Facebook? WhatsApp alone, 100 billion messages exchanged every day, and it's only one of their private messaging platforms. Do, do you have a sense of what their long-term plan is for WhatsApp? Is there integration down the line between WhatsApp and their other platforms? Yes, yeah, so there's, there's a plan very much to integrate uh, the communication platform, so the ability to be able to start a conversation on one Facebook property uh, and converse with somebody on another. That's an ongoing project to try and make things more seamless for users. Uh, I think in, ter in terms of monetization, though, the big opportunity now looks as though it might come from commerce. So the Facebook shop product, which is launching um, 
and uh, utilizing the ability to essentially manage your entire business from end to end through the Facebook platform. So not just in terms of getting in touch and, and advertising to people, but in terms of completing the shopping experience on the Facebook platform as well. So that's the big opportunity. Clearly, it's 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 going to be some time before it's a meaningful portion of their revenue, but that would be potentially the next um, big driver beyond advertising. Because at the end of the day, Google and Facebook are really just advertising businesses at the moment. Can I ask you about some of the regulation, Mark, because we've had the tech executives testifying on Capitol Hill and we saw some comments from Alphabet uh, in the earnings call where Pitchai is effectively commenting on the Department of Justice lawsuit and making the case that they believe their products are creating significant benefits and that they will make the case. But do you think there's anything to worry about in the next 12 months from investors from a regulatory standpoint? So my personal point of view on this is really that the regulation will be evolutionary not revolutionary. So I think that there will be a constant back and forth between uh, authorities, governments, and these big social media platforms. Um, there will be large fines imposed you know, here and there in, in certain quarters, but not, not, not fines that these companies can't take as part of their kind of normal operating stride. And clearly the companies themselves are trying very hard to be proactive. Facebook now has 30,000 people focusing on uh, assessing content um, and this is a trend that I would expect to continue. You know, Facebook gave um, a 33% um, forecast increase in operating costs uh, for next year to somewhere between 68 and $75 billion. And a fair chunk of that extra spend will go on continuing to uh, moderate and manage content effectively and to try and do what's necessary to keep the regulators happy. There is also, of course, issues about, um, um, about regulation between these companies. So, you know, Apple wants to ensure more privacy for their users. And so, you know, it is, uh, as of next year, it will be harder for advertisers to track their users through the iPhone ecosystem. Um, and so that's another um, kind of puzzle that has to be solved. So I think that, you know, there are all sorts of areas of regulation and privacy, but it will, it will, it will evolve, it, it, it won't be a revolution. So I'm, I'm not really too concerned. And it is reflected in prices. Both Google and Facebook are relatively cheap compared to many of their counterparts. Mark, are those the two that you would be willing to buy at this point just quickly? Um, I think that they both represent really good value in a market that is looking a little bit frothy short term. So yes, they were, they were, of the big mega cap names, they would probably be my two favorites. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Mark Horton with us, Investment Director at GAM. Well, plenty coming up. We're going to tell you about what's uh, taking place at Apple and the latest tech earnings. You can uh, look at the full impact of the launch of a new Apple premium subscription service. Head to our website, that is cnbc.com. Let's dive into today's earnings, starting with Swiss Re results just crossing the wire. Swiss Re has delivered a strong underlying business performance and maintains its industry-leading capital strength. That's the headline from Swiss Re. But the company has swung to a net loss in the first nine months after booking claims and reserves of $3 billion related to COVID-19. So diving into the numbers here, Swiss Re maintains a very strong capital position. Group Swiss solvency test ratio of 223% as of July 1st. 
first, uh, looking at the return on investments, an ROI of 3.4%. The property and casualty reinsurance business, that has hit a nine-month net loss of $201 million after a strong Q3 performance, excluding the COVID-19 impact net income of $1 billion with a return on equity of 15.5%. So major adjustment for the COVID-19 impact. Uh, the corporate solutions unit recorded a net loss of 200 of $323 million for the first nine months. And again, a significant COVID-19 impact there. On the outlook, uh, Swiss Re saying that Swiss Re is well-equipped to benefit from an improving market environment. Our capital position is very strong, allowing us to pursue profitable growth as prices develop favorably across our PNC Re and corporate solutions businesses. We're confident that we can continue to support our clients with risk knowledge, capital strength, and tailored solutions in these unprecedented times. And we'll have more on Swiss Re later on when we speak to John Dacey, the CFO. I'm just uh, taking a look at the Air France KLM numbers that are crossing right now and revenue uh, deeply in the red in terms of the fall. But we've witnessed that all this year, double digit falls from the start of the first quarter. It was done roughly about 18 percent, then then down about 85 odd percent. Now in the third quarter, revenue is off 67 percent. So that pace of decline you saw in the second quarter seems to have slowed slightly, but still hugely uh, down on the prior year. 2.5 billion euros, the revenue number for the third quarter an operating loss of 1.05 billion, the EBITDA loss 442 million euros. Net debt uh, that's risen to 9.3 billion euros as at the end of September, that is up 3.16 billion euros since the end of 2019. The uh, numbers that we're seeing on the operating free cash flow, um, that's a minus 1.22 billion euros down 985 million year on year. So what you're seeing through these uh, flashes today, uh, clearly the pain that's been uh, piled onto the industry from the quarantines, the lack of uh, travelling that's taking place by leisure and business travellers and the Q3 passenger traffic numbers, they are down a fairly uh, significant 69.8% to 8.79 million. So uh, you're seeing that huge drop off there. Uh, capacity, Q4 capacity to be below 35% of a year ago at Air France, slightly higher at KLM, according to the CFO today. So those are some of the capacity cuts that have taken place, uh, given the lack of demand out there. Liquidity at 12.4 billion. Keep in mind, this is an airline that has taken uh, a bailout from the government, uh, two governments, I should say, French and Dutch governments, uh, back uh, in around July of this year. They got about 10.4 billion euros in bailout loans and guarantees to help them survive this crisis. But there's been much chatter in the backdrop, particularly from the Dutch side from KLM, arguing for more cost cutting to try and sustain the airline. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up on the show, we talk U.S. politics as the presidential candidates dial up the heat in their campaigns. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. Let's take a look at the trading session that took place yesterday on Wall Street. As you can see beside me, you've got green across the board. So U.S. markets staging a rebound. In particular, the tech-heavy Nasdaq accelerating yesterday, gaining about 1.6%. And that was, of course, ahead of the slew of tech earnings that hit the tape after the bell that Karen and I were discussing before the break. So in the lead up to those releases, we did see investors putting money to work in those tech stocks. Taking a look at the overnight trade, Asian markets, are trading lower, red across the board here. And this is in line with a downturn in U.S. futures as well. we got the Hang Seng down about 1.8% over in Japan, the Nikkei 225 down 1.5%, and the mainland Chinese market, the Shanghai Composite, down about 1.1%. So broad-based losses in the overnight session. Putting it all together, let's take a look at what this means for opening calls here in Europe. We've got a down-looking start to trade here as well. The DAX and the FTSE MIB looking at particular weakness. The FTSE MIB looking at a more than 200-point drop at the open. The DAX looking at about 160 points lower, and it has already been a very tough week for that German market. Karen. We're going to be switching focus to the U.S. election clearly next week, and the presidential candidates have hit the campaign trail in a key swing state, Florida. With just four days to go before the election, the pandemic remains a key issue. The president told supporters he disagrees with locking down again. They're spiking up big. They're shutting down. They're locking down. I disagree with that because we're never going to lock down again. We locked down. We understood the disease. And now we're open for business. And that's what it is. And that's what it is. This explosive economic growth is four times greater than what the experts expected. They expected a number that would be like 7%, 8%. A Reuters Ipsos poll has found that four in 10 voters say they will not accept the result of next Tuesday's election if their favored candidate loses. Tim Cameron joins us now, former chief digital strategist, National Republican Senatorial Committee. Tim joins us from Alexandria, Virginia. Great to have you on the show, Tim. So a a lot of the headlines are focusing on the presidential race, rightly so in some respects, but a lot of the influence, the power of the president comes down to whether or not they also have control of Congress, in particular the Senate. What are the chances at this point in your view that the Democrats take hold of not only the presidential position, but also the Senate? Well, I think right now it's a complete coin flip. Uh, Democrats have the edge in a number of races right now where they're considered favorites, likely in Arizona, Colorado, and Maine. Uh, But they need to pick up four seats, and that's because currently they have a Senator Doug Jones who lives in a very conservative state of Alabama, which is expected to go heavily to Trump, and he's expected to lose. Now, Democrats were considered the favorite in North Carolina until just a few weeks ago when Cal Cunningham, their candidate in that race, was caught having an extramarital affair with a veteran's wife. Compounding this issue is Cunningham, who is an Army reservist himself, is now under investigation by the United States military for violations of military code. That's made this race a complete toss-up. Now, Republicans have another pure toss-up race in Iowa, but Joni Ernst is gaining momentum in the polls. So how this lands is is really big question. And unlike the presidential, where polls have heavily favored Donald Trump, the Senate polls, especially in these key states, have bounced around and largely show that these races are tied. When it comes to the presidential race, the national polls have pretty consistently been showing th- 
Joe Biden in the lead here. And one of the defining features of this election cycle versus 2016 is the consistency that the polls have shown. In 2016, it was a lot more volatile. Where could the polls be be wrong? Where might the blind spots be this time around? Well, if you look down into the battleground states where the Electoral College will be decided, polls are a lot closer than the national polls, which uh, get largely skewed by large states like California and New York, which are going to vote Democrat anyways. When you look at Pennsylvania, real clear politics average is 3.5%, which is in margin of error. And a lot of polls are showing closer than that. The president's path to victory certainly goes through places like North Carolina and Arizona, where he's shown tied or slightly behind. Same for Florida. But the president also has opportunities in addition to Pennsylvania and states like Minnesota, which was a Clinton state last cycle, as well as Michigan and Wisconsin, which were two states that were key to his victory. If the polling error is a little bit off, it will definitely turn up in those states. And that's how President Trump could sit together another surprising, albeit more narrow, electoral college victory like he did in 2016. Tim, we've got a fairly typical weekend ahead before the election where it's just frantic for both sides, for Trump and for Biden. Trump is scheduled to be in Michigan, Wisconsin and Minnesota today. Biden has plans to stop some Wisconsin, Minnesota, as well as Iowa. But that said, a lot of votes have already been cast and that is atypical this election. 80 million votes already in the ballot box. So what does that mean in terms of the ability of either side to transform the vote last minute? Well, a lot of the people that have already voted are, are partisans. They're the folks who knew that they were going to vote for Biden, knew that they were going to vote for Trump, and likely knew how they were going to vote down ballot. The remaining folks that are out there are those undecided voters. While there are certainly folks who like voting on Election Day, many of the people who haven't voted still can be shifted one way or the other. And I think a lot of the key campaigning, you know, really could determine the outcome of this race, especially in some of these key battlegrounds where these races are potentially a lot closer than what the national polls are showing. Tim, I was fascinated by some of the commentary about what plays out on election night. And Pennsylvania was one great example where effectively they were saying that, uh, you know, as you're alluding to, a lot of them is mail-in votes can be on for the Democrats versus in-person voting for the Republicans. But then on election night, that could have, could have ramifications where you may see this red mirage where Republican votes are counted first because they've happened on the day. But then a blue shift may occur later on. Those Democrat votes as the mail-in ballots are counted. Just give us a sense of what sort of roller coaster night it could be as we watch some of these key areas, battleground states be counted? Well, unless Biden has a straight blowout, um, which would really involve him winning Florida, we likely won't know the outcome of the election until at least a few days afterwards when a lot of these absentee ballots could be cast. But some of these swing states now have deadlines uh, of ballot receipt that are up to seven days after the election, even 10 days after the election. So it actually may be a couple weeks before we know what the outcome of the presidential. Now, compounding things is that we won't know who controls the Senate likely until well after that. There's going to be more than likely a runoff in Georgia, as well as potentially a runoff in Louisiana. And those two contests would stretch, at least in Georgia's case, as far as January 4th. So there's going to be a lot of uncertainty for the next couple months about who won the election, unless it's a blowout on the Biden side. 
Uh, Tim, just a quick last question on the stimulus negotiations in Washington. I'm curious if the lack of agreement has hurt either side at this stage. Of course, Nancy Pelosi has been leading the charge for House Democrats. So has that impacted the way voters are feeling at this stage? Well, if you look at the polling, most voters blame Nancy Pelosi rather than Donald Trump and uh, Mitch McConnell for the gridlock that's taking place wrong the stimulus. Um, we can see this play out likely in a number of competitive house races that are, are taking place and largely staying under the radar where new freshman Democrats who were elected in the blue wave in 2018 are now being accused of not delivering results. They're facing a very challenging electoral environment by the fact that they had won Trump districts to get in. And these people are predisposed, these voters are predisposed not to like Nancy Pelosi in the first place. So if we're going to see the effects, it's probably going to be more on the House race side, more so than the presidential or the Senate, just because opinions about especially the presidential candidates are largely locked in and uh, stuff such as the stimulus is, is probably going to be a, a secondary item as far as voting. And People are much more concerned, in my opinion, not about the stimulus per se, but who's the best equipped to handle America's economic recovery from the coronavirus on a long-term basis. All right, Tim, uh, thank you so much for joining us ahead of this all-important election next week. Tim Cameron, former chief digital strategist, National Republican Senatorial Committee. We've got some data crossing uh, this from France on GDP in the third quarter. It's a bounce, as expected, uh, recovery 18.2% quarter-on-quarter is the size of the increase. This is much steeper than the forecast number of 15.4%, so much stronger bounce back. Uh, this is all versus revised 13.7% in the second quarter, minus 13.7% is what we witnessed. So the snapback, uh, fairly decent. If you peel away to the individual categories, consumer spending, that was minus 5.1% month-on-month, so still some weakness in the September numbers there, and that is weaker than the forecast number of minus 1%. Household spending, though, is plus 17.3% overall quarter-on-quarter. Quarter. Business investment is plus 20.2%. According to INSEE, domestic demand ex inventories contributed plus 18.9 percentage points to the third quarter. Foreign trade maker made up a fairly slim 1.2 points. Inventories minus 1.9 points. So this is uh, quite an interesting reading on the third quarter, given we've had fresh lockdowns declared this week. And uh, some of the early forecasting by the likes of Berenberg was suggesting that the fourth quarter GDP hit may be to the tune of 3 to 4 percent. So after the bounce back that we've just seen, that double digit increase, we may see uh, some weakness again now for the final stretch of 2020. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.